Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. How you doing today? Doing good? Okay, just checking. I always like to read the room a little bit. I'm doing great. Uh, It's good to see you. My name is Michael. I am the lead pastor here, as Alex said. Um, Some of you might have just heard for the first time that we are going to have uh, two services. That might have, some of you knew that that get the the public emails uh, or the the email that was uh, communicated, uh, but in case you didn't know, in a few weeks, we are going to uh, begin having two services um, because, you know, the room is full and we're, we're not even um, back into the full swing of the fall, and we want to make room for folks to join that, uh, you know, they want to have some empty space in here. Uh, so that is going to be September the 10th. We will go to two services, a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. service. That's September 10th, 9 and 11 a.m. services. And uh, if you don't get the, the public, our weekly emails, um, go to our website, uh, ctksensi.com, and there's a tab for the public, and you can sign up to receive our emails there. And there will be communication sent out in the next, uh, next week or so uh, that has more details. Okay? So um, I'm glad you're here, though. I'm glad all of you are here. Um, I see a few people that I've never seen before, and I see, uh, I think, what I assume to be college students. The older I get, the younger everybody else looks, but <laughs> I'm assuming uh, some of you are college students. Welcome. We're glad, that, glad to have you here. We're walking distance from the school, from college, you see, and uh, so we're glad to have you here and uh, everybody else from all walks of life. Uh, it's, it's fun to, you know, just to be gathered together as the church. You are here as we are um, almost done with the book that we've been studying for the last couple of years, and that is the Gospel of Luke. This, uh, we're in Luke chapter 24, and this is one of the last three sermons that we'll have in this book. Today, and then Zach Frick will be preaching next Sunday, and then I will finish out the book after that. So you can look forward to, to hearing Zach preach next Sunday. Um, but we'll finish out Luke, and then we're going to jump into First Peter in the week after that, and that will take us through all of the fall. So it's a great chance to jump in. Our city groups, um, small groups are starting up that, uh, you know, many groups are on a break over the summer, so we'll be starting up, and our city groups will be spending time in the book of First John. So a couple New Testament books that you'll have a chance to get familiar with over the next few months. It's a great chance to plug into a church, to meet some people, um, and join a small group. So glad you're here, and I hope you'll, you'll uh, consider making this your church home if you don't already have one. So we're in Luke 24, and this is one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. In fact, Luke 24, this story is the first appearance of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Last week, Wade preached about uh, the empty tomb and the, you know, the people arriving at the tomb to find it empty. Today's story is the first account where we actually see Jesus. And the story that we're going to look at only appears in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a wonderful story. It, it's a, I, I say this a lot. I'm like, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I probably say that too much. But this really is one of my favorite stories in the Bible um, because not only does it have theological weight to it, but it is a personally moving story because you have these, uh, these guys that are encountering Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And then whenever they do recognize him, it's this really dramatic moment, and we'll get to that in a second. 
But it, um, this is the story where Jesus teaches a very important biblical principle, and this is what I'm going to illustrate throughout the message today. And the principle is this, that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Obviously, the New Testament is, but a lot of people don't know that the Old Testament is also about Jesus, even though the Old Testament was written before Jesus even came, before Jesus was even born. And I'll tell you why as we go along. But the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, it's all a story about Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the big meta theme, it's all about Jesus. So the story of the Bible is going somewhere. It's not just little anecdotes. It's not just ethical teachings. It is a narrative that moves from God saying, let there be light and creating the world. And then that story moves. You see genealogies recorded where you have people's names written down. And then there are stories of what happened in the lives of these people. We have the story of what went wrong in the world, which is Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and then that sin has become the, the fracturing of God's good world. And that is why we experience the brokenness in the world that we experience today. But the Bible is going somewhere. The story is going somewhere. And so at the very beginning, God set in motion a sequence of events to put his display or put his glory on display for all heaven and earth to see. And that's where it will end up. Where it will end up is God's glory being broadcast and visibly displayed throughout all creation. Everyone will see it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will behold this glorious reality of who Jesus is because the story is about him. So for thousands of years, this plan was playing out until ultimately came to its culmination whenever God himself became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a baby who grew up and who we know as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was fully human being in every way that we're human, except he was without sin because he was also fully divine. He is everything that God is, both human and divine in one human person. And he walked among us, and he lived among us. He taught the way of God. He revealed God's power. He performed miraculous uh, deeds. And yet he was perfectly righteous in every way. He was unjustly condemned by the Roman government at the urging and prompting of the Jewish authorities. And he was crucified. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead. He rose from the dead, and he is still alive, though he ascended to be with the Father. All the Old Testament is about that story. All the stories and the teachings and the Psalms and the, the Proverbs and the wisdom literature and the narrative and the kingdom and the nation, all of those stories ultimately are demonstrating this ultimate, large, glorious, cosmic fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's telling his story. So the covenants with Abraham, the, the story of Moses and the exodus of Egypt, and the law of God which was revealed on Mount Sinai, and the nation of Israel, and the kingship which, which, uh, which uh, was under King David and King Solomon, and all the prophets of the Old Testament, all of those stories are about Jesus. 
This whole time, that whole time, all throughout those, those, uh, those thousands of years that culminated up to the birth of Christ, all of those things that happened was God working out a plan of redemption to bring about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's what God's righteousness required to satisfy his justice, to pave a way to save us. Because God's plan was to do this from the beginning. And although throughout, many, throughout his ministry, Jesus said this all kinds of times. He said, I do that that the scriptures may be fulfilled. I do this or that. And he would say this repeatedly. The disciples weren't able to see it. But now they're about to. And that's the story we're going to look at. Let's dig in. Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to start with verse 13. And what we do in this church is we preach through books of the Bible. And uh, so this is where we are, the, part, the text that we've reached today. So we're Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That very day. When, it, when he say that very day, this is the third day. So this comes right on the heels of the story that was told before of um, the empty tomb. So that very day. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So he's there. He's walking alongside them, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day, there it is, the third day, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did did not see. We'll pause here for a second. That very day is when this is happening. So this is the third day. We saw it here in uh, verse uh, 21. So this very day, this is... This is... um, I'm reconnecting my iPad here to make sure. I'm supposed to, we're supposed to be able to see this on the, on the screen. Showing up. 
So this is Sunday, and they had heard earlier this day, earlier this day, they'd heard of an empty tomb. So it had been reported to them, and they, they told Jesus here, though they didn't recognize him, they told him, this is what, it, they saw this empty tomb. But they still left town, because if they thought Jesus was alive and in town, they wouldn't have just left the way they did. So they'd heard the report, they'd heard the report of angels, but they didn't believe it. So at Jesus' prompting, so Jesus prompted them, and when he did so, this guy named Cleopas, he begins rehearsing the basic facts of Jesus' life and ministry. He knew all the details. So what are some of the details he went through? Well, let's go back. Um, verse, verse 19, are we able to see this, or do I need to, we're still not able to, to see it? Let me just unplug this, and I'll unplug this here to try to connect. Who said, um, all of these things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, so that's the man, who was a prophet, two things about him, mighty in deed and word. So Jesus of Nazareth, that's the man. He was a prophet. He was mighty in deed, that's his miracles, and his word, that's his teaching, before God, so he was sent from God, and all the people. Everybody, a lot of people witnessed this. It wasn't done in secret. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. So that's the, the trial. And they crucified him. Those are the facts. Cleopas knew the information. He knew the data. The facts were, were not uh, obscured to him. And yet, he said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, when you read that, what does that sound like? We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. That doesn't sound like he believes it anymore, does it? It sounds like he'd given up hope. He doesn't believe it anymore. And that's the part was, that was so painful for them. This was such a painful thing. The redeemer they hoped for was the Messiah. That's the one that the Old Testament prophesied and anticipated. If you, I always wonder this after a presidential election. You've got the winner, and you know, they give their victory speech, but you also have the loser, and they concede the election. And I always just wonder, like, how must it feel to be the guy who is conceding the election? After spending years preparing for this race and having been on the campaign trail for two years, nonstop, day and night, traveling the country, crisscrossing, zigzagging, just long hours, campaigning hard, debating, doing all these things. And then finally, election night, the results are coming in and you realize you've lost. That's got to be such a miserable feeling. So you take that feeling and you multiply it by a thousand and you're getting closer to what it might have been like for these guys to feel this way here. Because not only were they believing in Jesus as some political guy that would come and be a ruler, but he was the Messiah. This was God's redemption of his people. The Jewish people were under Roman occupation, and they hoped a Messiah would deliver them and restore them to power. This would have been coming out of, of, of being in an oppressed, uh, an oppressed, occupied position. So they weren't just disappointed that their guy lost. They were devastated because their guy was murdered. 
What are you going to do then? I mean, imagine on election night, it's like not only did your guy lose, but somebody killed your guy. I mean, that's how they felt. And so beyond this, just before they left town, they started hearing these reports surface. Earlier that same day, that very morning, they'd heard about, well, you know, some ladies went to the tomb to anoint the body, and his body was gone. And there's like, yeah, they're crazy talk. They're talking about some angels saying that he was alive, but we know they're just, they're nuts. They're, that's crazy talk. So they weren't thinking resurrection. If they were thinking resurrection, they would have stayed in town to find out what happened. They were, they were traveling to Emmaus. They were headed seven miles out of town. So they were thinking grave robbery. The body of their Lord, the man that they loved, was desecrated by grave robbers. Somebody stole the body. What kind of sick people would steal the body of Jesus? Now, there's something that's missing from Cleopas's story. Did you catch it? You notice whenever he, he told the story, there, there was something that he left out. He mentioned that there was reports of what the angels said about Jesus raising, but they didn't, they didn't talk about the fact that Jesus himself predicted this. And I want to read to you a text from Luke chapter 18. Now, in the, in the timeline, this would have been about two weeks prior. So this would, have been a, this would have been a conversation, a teaching of Jesus that would have been fresh in their minds from Luke 18, verse 31 to 34. So Jesus is teaching here. And taking the 12, he said to them, I mean, just see, like, he lays it out. Here's a roadmap, guys. Here's what's about to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Hey, fellas. Let me tell you exactly what's about to go down. And Cleopas, when he just told the story, that's exactly what he reported. Everything, it's like, this is, this is what happened, except for the last detail. They didn't believe the last detail. And so at the time, you know, Luke tells us, well, at the time, they understood none of these things. They didn't get it. They were just like, oh, sometimes Jesus says weird things, but we love him anyway. You know, it's like, but we like the guy. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Cleopas and his buddy is still in this condition. They're still in this state where they don't understand, even though Jesus gave them a play-by-play. Here is exactly how it's going to fold out. So Jesus said, on the third day he will rise. Now guess what today is, the day of this story. It's the third day. And guess what reports they had heard from the, this angel that Jesus had risen? They didn't believe it. Of all the things that Cleopas mentioned recounting the life and ministry of Jesus, he left this part out. All the dots were there. He just didn't connect them. He knew the facts, right? He had the information. But the facts were not alive to him. They were, not, they were not active and operative in his heart. And in this wonderful irony, 
the man who is drawing attention to the fact is none other than Jesus himself that they just don't recognize. I spoke to Da earlier. He's like, why do you think they didn't recognize him? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> there could be any number of explanations, but the Bible doesn't tell us why. We just, we don't know, but they didn't recognize him. So Cleopas couldn't see. He couldn't see the Lord. So he was, you could say he was blind. Spiritually speaking, he was blind, and he needed his blindness to be healed in order to recognize Jesus. Now, in an irony, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's intentional. This text that I just read to you from Luke 18, in that text um, where he, was, he, he didn't, you know, they didn't recognize or they didn't uh, understand these things, the very next story in Luke 18 is a story of a blind man being healed by Jesus. And so that's a, there is a symbolic element to that. I mean, Jesus literally healed a physically blind man. But there is also the, the arrangement of the narrative, and Luke tells that story there. And this is also done in Mark and Matthew. They tell the story of a blind man being healed around the same time when spiritual blindness is in play. So the blindness that is healed physically by Jesus is symbolic of a greater spiritual blindness that also needs to be healed. And the arrangement of the stories and the narrative makes that plain. Unbelief is not merely an information problem. It's a blindness problem. It's not an information problem where somebody who doesn't believe in Christ, what they need is more data. What they need is more facts. What they need is more information. And if I just had the right information, that's what will convince them Christianity is true. It doesn't work that way. Because, it's, because unbelief is not an information problem. You need information to believe, of course. You have to believe something specific. But more information does not translate to greater faith, or more information does not produce faith. In reality, information needs to be activated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies it and convinces the person that it is true. Their stony heart is softened and turned into a heart of flesh to enable them to believe. So ultimately, unbelief is a blindness problem, not an information problem. The unbeliever is spiritually blind, just like Cleopas is spiritually blind. And so the information of Christianity, the stories, the scriptures, the truths, those, that information needs to be coupled with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit that heals spiritual blindness and enables a person to receive and to believe the information presented. That's why you can never, ever, ever, ever argue somebody into becoming a Christian. It doesn't matter. You can, I mean, there are world-class Christian debaters that they know all the arguments, they, ha they understand all of, the, all of the facts, and they are they're completely, they're undefeated when it comes to argumentation and debate. But argumentation and debate is not what makes a believer. We don't, we don't browbeat people into faith. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. You, you cannot argue somebody into the Christian faith. That doesn't mean we don't present arguments and we don't try to convince people, but we know that, that is, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that must convert the soul. So if you're trying to convince somebody to become a Christian by arguing with them all the time, that's like arguing with a blind man telling him to see. 
It's like arguing with a dead man telling him to live. You can't do it. They need to be healed of their blindness. They need to be resurrected from their spiritual deadness in order to to place their faith in Christ and to receive and to believe the information. Unbelievers can comprehend the data, you know, on a human level, but conversion is a work of the Spirit. That's why we call it in Christian theology regeneration. You heard that word, regeneration? Regeneration is what the Spirit does, which means, like, Genesis means to make or to create. Regenerate means to be recreated and to be remade. And that's something God does. We don't regenerate ourselves. We don't remake ourselves. God does that within us. And the means through which, this is important, the means through which God regenerates us is somebody proclaiming the gospel, somebody presenting the information. So it's not as though we just don't say anything and let God do the work. It doesn't work that way. God always works alongside and empowering the testimony of people who are presenting the information. And so as Christians presenting the gospel, we don't trust in our ability to be geniuses and to argue perfectly and to say everything right. We trust in God who works through our attempts to communicate something spiritual and eternal and profound, and God will work in that person's heart to believe and to receive what we say, even though it's imperfectly communicated. But conversion is a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. So Christian, as, you're, as a Christian, what is your job? Your job is not merely to step aside and like, well, if God wants to save him, he'll do it. No, of course not. We don't, that's, that's not how God works. Your job as a Christian is to faithfully proclaim and declare and live the truth of the gospel, to, to say it out loud with words. God's job, the Holy Spirit's job, is to activate it in their heart, to come alongside in the things that you're saying in their ear, to, to tell them this is true, this is real, to draw them towards it, to help them to see it, to give them a desire for it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes it alive. The Holy Spirit takes the dots and connects them together to where in a moment they're like, I, I think I agree with this. Now, of course, they may, be, they may not say it that way. But there's going to be something within them that says, I, I think yeah, that kind of makes sense. That adds up. That cannot be done merely at a human level. That is something that the Holy Spirit does within them, convincing them. So God's appointed means of saving people is a combination of Christians sharing the gospel, that's your part, and the Holy Spirit turning on the lights, that's his part. It's together, both. So let's keep going. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't say, O foolish ones, you didn't believe those women whenever they told you I was alive. What does he, what does he, what does he criticize them or rebuke them for not believing? He said, you don't, you, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, all the Old Testament data. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So it's like, hey guys, it's been there all along. It's been there all along. You, you, you could have seen this. I've told you this in advance. 
So he's like, guys, this was always in your Bibles. And this is the theme of Luke's gospel. It's repeated. Jesus is not merely going around doing cool, supernatural stuff to impress his friends. He was acting with a purpose. He came with a divine mission. He was following a pattern of God that was laid out in the Old Testament, and Jesus was fulfilling it and accomplishing it all. And they missed it because they didn't have eyes to see it. There was a spiritual blindness still that was preventing them from seeing the truth. But all that is about to change when we get to the end of the story. I want to show you three key words here. Three key words in verse 26. And Jesus asked this rhetorical question as Jesus is so good at doing. Was it not necessary, there's one, that the Christ should suffer, there's the second one, these things and enter into his glory. That's the third one. Boy, my handwriting's awful. Let me do that again. And enter into his glory. There we go. Necessary, suffer, and glory. Those are the dots that Jesus is going to connect. First word, necessary. Meaning it had to be this way. There was some imperative. There was some There was something that required it to be this way. And the thing that required it is God's own character and God's own declaration prophetically in advance. This is the way it would be. It had to be this way to satisfy God's righteousness and God's justice that was all laid out in the Old Testament. It's been there the whole time. You might ask, well, where was this in the Old Testament? Well, I'll tell you. It's in the sacrificial system. Some of you might have always wondered, it's like, well, why did they kill animals in the Old Testament? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the animals, uh, I'll tell you why. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was put in place to teach them about God's holiness and man's sin. That's not the only reason, but that was a part of the reason was it had a teaching effect. And it was to demonstrate and to teach them about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But God would not be just if he did not punish sin, right? If, if somebody commits a crime against you and nobody has ever punished for it, that's an injustice that you would have endured. And all sin is against God. And if God just ignored sin, he would not be a just God. He would not be a God of justice. And yet we know God is just, right? And so the law of God in the Old Testament and the sacrificial system demonstrates God is righteous, that's the standard, and he is just, which is how it is applied in our lives. So God would not be just if he did not punish sin. And yet, if God did not forgive sin, he would not be merciful. And we need God to be merciful, amen? If God were not merciful... Heaven help us, we're in big trouble. So we need, we want God to be merciful and we see both of these things taught in the Bible, God's justice and God's mercy. But God's justice and mercy could both be demonstrated by providing some means of atonement for sin. So in the Old Testament, God provided a substitute, which was an animal sacrifice that would symbolize the placing on the animal the penalty for our sin. And then they would eat that animal and be nourished by, by cooking and, and eating the flesh of that animal. It was food for them. In the New Testament, God sent his only son as a substitute for us, as a perfect once-for-all sacrifice for our sin, and we eat his body and his blood symbolically whenever we come to the table and we drink the, the, the cup and we eat the bread 
You might think, well, that sounds weird. Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And so Jesus feeds us when we come to the table. He is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. So Jesus' death was not an accident. It's not as though this was just a miscarriage of justice. It was a divine necessity. Jesus said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Making it clear what the Old Testament taught all along through the sacrificial system. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. When he says, by sending his own son, here's Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is, he's fully human, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus was sent by the Father in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like us. He was a human being. And in his body, a perfect man who needed not be crucified, needed not be executed because he had, no, he had committed no crime, he was innocent, and yet he was condemned for our crime. And so whenever Christ died on the cross, it was as a substitute. He died in our place. Well, why did he have to die? Well, it is because there was a righteous requirement. And what is the righteous requirement? It is the holiness of God, the perfect holiness of God that would be unjust if there were not some atonement, if there were not some accounting for our sin. And so Christ dying in our place, that frees us from having to suffer for our own sin eternally in hell. That's the mercy of God. That is his love for us. Jesus died in our place. So there was the necessity that Jesus would suffer and then enter into his glory which means after Jesus suffered, he entered into glory. Initially, it was at his resurrection. He was a glorified body. But then, we'll see this in a few weeks, Jesus ascended back to the Father where he lives in glory at the Father's right hand for eternity. Hebrews chapter 10 teaches these things. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that was the crucifixion, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's his glory. So here's the suffer, and here's the glory. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Meaning, the, the death of Christ was sufficient for all human beings of all time who would believe in him. One sacrifice by one man is sufficient to cover the sins of, of many. And for 2,000 years, the, the roles in heaven have been increasing day by day as more and more people place their faith in Christ, their sins are forgiven, and they, they have the hope of, of eternal life in Him. And all of these things were necessary, Jesus said, not because He just said it in the moment, but because He said it was written down. This was the pattern. This was, everything was done according to the Scripture. It was done to fulfill Scripture. And so, the next verse, man, I would love to have been here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
I mean, imagine somebody saying, hey, you know the Constitution of the United States? They wrote that about me. I mean, how weird would that be? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying because Jesus is God and the whole Old Testament is about him. So beginning with Moses, well, Moses wrote Genesis um, through Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible. And all the prophets, that is, like Genesis and the prophets, that is, that is considered like, it's like the A to Z. It, it's, it's, there's a, um, it, it, it is a representative sample that indicates the whole thing. He's saying the whole Bible, Gen- Moses and the prophets, all of the Old Testament is about me. And so what Luke is stating out loud is plain and direct and unambiguous. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. One way or another, it's all about Jesus. Every plot point, every storyline connects to Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is that his death and burial was not a cosmic accident, and he happened to find a workaround when he's like, oh, wait a minute, if they kill me, I'll just rise again. It's not as though he just kind of figured out a glitch in the system. That was the plan. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was God's plan all along. Jesus did not crack the code. Jesus wrote the code. It is his code. It is his word that he is fulfilling. Let me read you a few scriptures. John 1, in the beginning, that sounds like Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, but this is about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Translation, Jesus created everything. He's the creator. He was there at the beginning. Whenever God was saying, let there be light, that was Jesus Christ creating the world, creating the universe. Acts chapter 2, this is um, uh, the, the apostle Peter preaching the gospel, and he's saying, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we have this this interplay between human responsibility, but they were acting according to what God had foreordained what happened. It was that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here's another one. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, um, in him we have redemption through his blood. There's the suffering again. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, meaning the death of Christ is not just so you and I get to go to heaven, but Jesus died and rose again so that every part where the curse is found and all the cosmos, the all created order everywhere in distant far off galaxies, if there's a, an effect of the fall there, the blood of Jesus and his death and his resurrection makes it right again. He undoes the effects of the curse. And finally, the last two Paul says at the end of this long description of the plan of God unfolding over over time, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. 
A few verses later, for from him, Jesus, and through him, Jesus, and to him, Jesus, are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the good news of the gospel. It is about Jesus. Now, here is the point. The entire Old Testament tells one big grand story. Creation, fall, redemption of God's people. The Old Testament doesn't merely contain prophecies of Jesus. The whole Old Testament is a prophecy of Jesus. One big, giant, unfolding prophecy of Christ. Jesus is God. He set it in motion, and he moved it along by his power, and he brought it to completion. We see Jesus is eternal, Psalm 102, 26. Jesus is the Son of God, Psalm 2, verse 7. Jesus is the Creator, John 1, 1, and Hebrews 1, 2. Jesus was a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Jesus was born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Jesus taught in parables, Psalm 78, 2. Jesus had a public ministry, Isaiah 61, 1. Jesus was zealous for for the Father, Psalm 69, 9. Jesus was a teacher, Isaiah 54, verse 13. Jesus acted faithfully, Psalm 40, verse 6. Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek and a greater priest than Aaron, Psalm 110, verse 4. Jesus embodied perfect wisdom, Jeremiah 9, 24. Jesus was hated, Psalm 69, verse 4. Jesus was seated on a donkey's colt, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Jesus became accursed, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. The soldiers cast lots for his clothes at his crucifixion, Psalm 22, verse 18. Not one of Jesus' bones were broken, Exodus 12, verse 46. Jesus was murdered, Isaiah 64, verse 4. Jesus was raised from the dead, Psalm 16, verse 10. Jesus is seated at God's right hand, Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus has all power and dominion, Psalm 8, verse 6. Jesus brings salvation to all who believe, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, both for the Jews and for the Gentiles, Isaiah 11, verse 10. Jesus is coming back, Habakkuk 2, verse 3, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, the whole Bible, the whole story of God, the whole plan of God from the very beginning is about Jesus. For all things are from him and through him and to him forever. Amen? So God, throughout all the Old Testament and all the different authors and their times and their types of literature, they were all speaking in their own time and in their own setting, their own voice, their own words that addressed issues in their time. And yet, God, by the Holy Spirit superseding all of them, was speaking with his voice by the Holy Spirit to lay out these dots, this plan, and connecting them together to where Jesus, here in Luke 24, can do a little Bible study with Cleopas and say, hey guys, let me interpret to you in all the scriptures the things that are about me. What a powerful Bible study that would have been. And we worship a big God who holds time and eternity in his hands, and he sovereignly directs all of history according to his purpose. Let's just get a couple verses and we'll be done. 
So after all this, these guys still don't recognize Jesus. They still don't recognize him yet, which this is mind-blowing. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. They finally rolled into Emmaus. He, Jesus, acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. So now they have all the facts, all the information. Jesus has interpreted in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They've heard everything. They know everything, and they still don't recognize him. But Jesus is about to change all that right now. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. That is the moment where Jesus powerfully turns on the lights and these guys, they see it. Like, that's him. Oh Oh my gosh, we've been talking to Jesus this whole time and we didn't know it. And he vanished from their sight. <laughs> they got to be thinking, what a ripoff, man. We just figured this thing out. And he vanished from our sight. But whenever Jesus reenacted the Lord's Supper scene to them, that's when their eyes were opened. And all the facts that they had heard and all the Bible data that they knew, it all came together at the table. Whenever Jesus reenacted this scene, he broke the bread and he gave it to them, giving thanks. And that's when it clicked. It's like you turn on your computer. All the power was there. All the, all the information was there, but you had to turn on the power for it to work. And when it did, all the circuits in their minds started to fire up, and then they could see. God removed their blindness, granted them sight, but then he vanished. Christians, whenever we come to the table each week, that's a great time to remember and to be reassured Christ died for you. And in his death, you find life. And when you come to the table, it's not just, it's not just hey, I remember now that Jesus died for me. No, that's, that's Jesus dining with you. He's inviting you to his table. It's a banquet. And he's feasting with you. And he's feeding you with himself. His own body and blood is the food. Savor that. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we talk, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The Holy Spirit was at work there. It was starting to happen. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. If you're not a Christian, I want to ask you a question. Does your heart burn within you at all? Is there a spark at all? And if there is, don't ignore that. Before they believed, they were saying, hey, did not not our hearts burn within us? It was burning. There's something going on there. And it took a little time before it all came together. If, if there's any spark in your heart at all, if there's any burn in your heart at all, if there's any inkling that this is true, this is right, I don't know what it all means, I don't know what to do with it, but, I, but if there's any inclination, any drawing towards it, don't ignore that. 
That's the Holy Spirit testifying to your soul, speaking to you, doing what only He can do. And that is saying to your soul, this is true, this is right, believe it and follow it. So if your heart is burning within you, the Holy Spirit is helping you to see the Savior. Consider if these things are true. Explore the Christian faith. Four things you can do right away. Read your Bible. Start with the Gospel of Luke, or if you prefer, start with the Gospel of John, but read the Bible. And as you read the Bible, number two, ask God to reveal Himself to you. Say, God, will you help me to see you? Help me to recognize you. Give me eyes to see Jesus. Number three, talk to a Christian about their faith. Ask them to share with you what being a Christian means to them, to share a testimony with you. Number four, come back. It may not be like, oh, this afternoon you have this moment. It could take a a couple weeks. It could take a month or two before things really settle in. But if your heart is burning within you, don't ignore that. God is at work. So it could be you need, a, you need a few weeks. Keep coming back. You'll keep hearing the gospel here. And it takes a while for new ideas to settle in, and God is patient. So commit to coming back, and God will answer that question for you. I'm confident of that. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do praise you. Thank you that all the scripture is about you and that you've been telling the same old story again and again and again and many times and many places and many ways that you're holy and that we are sinful and fallen and that we need you to rescue us and Jesus is the rescuer. And we can be forgiven and saved and receive your grace by confessing our sin and following you. Lord, we need to hear that again and again. We need to be reminded of that, which is why we come to the table. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not yet believe. Turn on the lights of their soul. Burn in their hearts. Connect the dots. Give them eyes to see. So that they can turn and be forgiven. And Lord, for those of us who do believe, I pray that once again, it'll become fresh and new Like the morning sun, when we come to the table, the grace of God, which is new every morning. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. And we worship you, Jesus, now in your glory. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.